All right. <clears throat> he is risen. He is risen indeed. All right. Amen. Uh, folks that are joining us online, we're happy to have some visitors here today. Um, and I hope that we have some online as well who may have not uh, followed along at any of our sermons before. And we welcome you. Uh, as always, we welcome the ones from uh, many different states and uh, from overseas who are watching us online and listening to our uh, Sunday morning sermons and our Tuesday evening Bible studies. And uh, we, we do love you dearly. We pray for you regularly. And uh, we just thank you for being here with us today. Um, Today is going to be a little bit out of the normal rhythm uh, for, our, for our Sunday mornings. Uh, first, the, the bearded man in the back over there is usually the one that's up here for our visitors. Uh, so you would, you would get to see him up here. Uh, but the other thing is that um, we normally teach exegetically through the Bible. We'll, we'll pick a particular book of the Bible and take a few verses each week and break them down and pastor does a tremendous job of helping us understand uh, the context in which those words were spoken and the true meaning of them. Um, but today's going to be a little different. Uh, we're going we're to take a uh, tour through uh, Scripture as we look at uh, both the resurrection and uh, communion or the Lord's table um, and how those two are intertwined and how they, how they play together. Um, we're going to cover a lot of territory pretty quickly, uh, so I, I just pray that you'll be able to keep up as you turn in your Bibles, and I'll try to give you plenty of advance warning as we do. Also for our visitors, I know that the Lord's Table is done a lot differently in different churches, and sometimes you just never know, uh, am I supposed to eat it now, or drink it now, or wait, or other things. I'll make that very clear as we get to uh, communion, uh, and you, you won't be uh, wondering what you're supposed to do. Uh, so with those announcements out of the way, let's, let's just pray and we'll open up this uh, Easter morning service. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for, for what this morning means. Uh, those ladies finding the empty tomb that morning and going and telling Jesus' disciples. And even at that point, Father, they still didn't understand what's going on. And, and that, that was by design. Uh, you, you, you teach us that... Uh, the, the tremendous change that occurred in those disciples uh, soon after they really truly understood who you were, who Jesus was, uh, and what he had done for them, and that he was the uh, spotless, perfect, sacrificial lamb of God who was once and for all sacrificed for, for all of the sins of anyone who would believe in him. And Father, it took some time for them to figure that out, but uh, you can tell by their uh, their lives and their deaths, that, uh, that they fully, truly understood it uh, after Jesus ascended and uh, they had the Holy Spirit descend upon them. And so, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for the, uh, the incredible plan that you had from uh, before the foundations of this world uh, to redeem a people to yourself. And uh, today we celebrate just uh, probably the central focal point of that entire plan. Uh, when Jesus rose from the grave and defeated sin and death forever. Uh, so, Father, we please be with us as we, as we go through this uh, service today. Uh, help us to clear our minds of the chaos that's in the world around us and whatever might be cluttering our minds. And, and help us just to uh, glory and your, your, revel in your glory uh, and your word as we, uh, as we look upon the resurrection and 
uh, how that had been predicted for so many years and uh, how uh, the communion that we will be taking at the end of the service today uh, plays a part in leading up to that resurrection. So, Father, we thank you for our time. We ask you to bless it, uh, and we uh, uh, give it all over to you, and we give you all the honor and the praise and the glory for the time that we're here together today. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the sermon title today is going to be Remembering the Resurrection All Year Long. Now, obviously, that's something that uh, we, we all pray that we would do. Uh, but as the chaos of the world gets going around us, sometimes we, we kind of lose our focus. Uh, but today we want to uh, look at how we might be able to remember the resurrection all year long. And I pray that in some small way that today's service will, will help us to do that. We'll see today that uh, if Jesus was not risen from the grave, if he had not come out of that tomb... Uh, we would be hopeless and helpless. We would be lost in our sins, and there would be nothing that we could do about it. Uh, so the resurrection is, uh, is an incredible event and an important event for us. The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the church in Corinth, uh, addressed that very thing. If you want to follow along, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, some of the people in the church in Corinth were struggling with the concept that the resurrection of the saints uh, and, and Paul was writing them to straighten them out, that the saints would be resurrected. Uh, notice how he emphasizes in these verses that I'm going to be reading the centrality of the resurrection to the Christian faith. Uh, and uh, we'll start reading in 1 Corinthians, verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The Apostle Paul starts right off by reminding the Corinthian church of the gospel that he had preached to them and how they had come to know uh, Jesus Christ. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the core, the center of, of the gospel message. As Paul wrote this, Jesus had already resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. The church was still very young at that point. Um, some of the church were claiming that there was not going to be a resurrection of the saints, the members of their church. And of course that caused great pain to the believers in Corinth uh, because that meant that their family members were not going to get to participate in the kingdom that was to come. And notice in these next verses, how the line of reasoning that Paul uses hinges on the centrality of the resurrection, the already accomplished resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's jump down to verse 12, where Paul makes the connection between Jesus' resurrection and the first resurrection of the saints who were already dead. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, 
then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, who have died in Christ, have perished. In Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, and this is a big but, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, the first Adam and the second Adam, Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Paul makes a very logical, well-structured argument there for the resurrection of the saints, the, the, the people who have died in Christ. Jesus was the prototype of all of the resurrections that are yet to come, the first of many. And because he was raised from the dead, Paul argues that we can rest assured that we too will be raised from the dead. Amen. Amen. Paul, Paul doesn't get into it here, but we do know that some will be raised to eternal life, to glory, and some will be raised to eternal torment. And that's why we preach the gospel to people uh, to uh, ensure that they have those opportunities to come to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and, uh, and share in the glory with us. Now, Paul had mentioned in that earlier scripture that these things had occurred in accordance with the scriptures. Now, th those scriptures that he was talking about there, the only thing that existed then was the Old Testament, what we know as the Old Testament. So, in essence, he's saying that uh, all of those things that he had just told us about had occurred in accordance with the Old Testament. So let's go back there. Let's go back to Exodus, verse, Exodus chapter 12, and I'll start in verse 1. I'll give you some time to get there. This past Thursday, um, let me get a drink. This past Thursday, we remembered some 2,000 years ago when Jesus was in the upper room of a man's home in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. The Hebrew people had been celebrating that meal for approximately 1,500 years. Theologians differ on how long, but let's say for the sake of today, 1,500 years. But that particular Passover meal, the one where Jesus was betrayed, was a watershed moment in the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant under which we live, in the name of our church, <laughs> New Covenant Church. Uh, the people of the nation of Israel, like I said, had been celebrating that memorial meal for nearly 1,500 years, and Jesus was about to bring it to an end that night uh, in the upper room because He was going to establish the New Covenant in His blood. So as we get into this text, this uh, Exodus chapter 12, nine of the ten plagues have already occurred, and we're about to pick up the narrative uh, in, in verse 1 uh, as uh, the Lord prepares Moses and Aaron to prepare the people for the, that tenth plague and for the Exodus. So Exodus 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. 
It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. <clears throat> you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh <clears throat> that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. <clears throat> Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened around you, your, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The Lord shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout the generations. This day to you shall be a memorial day. This is the same memorial that Jesus is uh, celebrating with his disciples in the upper room, that Passover meal, the night, uh, the night that he was betrayed. The symbology and the foreshadowing that are in Exodus 12 are easy for us to see on this side of the cross and with the New Testament that tells us uh, all about what was going on there. But for them, way back then, that, it was all new to them, and it was hard for them to understand what some of that symbology meant uh, until, until much later on. Did, did you catch some of the phrases in there? Like, uh, your lamb shall be without blemish. To them, that would have been a little lamb out in the, in the pasture that they were going to find with no blemish and that they were going to bring in and sacrifice. They weren't thinking about the prophetic uh, lamb of God, the perfect spotless lamb of God. That didn't come until later uh, in the understanding of that. Another, I, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Uh, the blood shall be a sign for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. The Jewish mind some 3,500 years ago would have understood those words in their immediate context and not realized that those were prophetic words of the coming spotless Lamb of God whose blood would once and for all cover the sins of His people and protect us from, from a coming judgment. The Lord is coming. He's going to pass judgment again but when he sees the blood of this perfect spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, he's going to see perfect righteousness, and he's going to pass over those who are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you're covered by the blood of the perfect spotless Lamb of God, and he will pass over you. Now that's something to celebrate Easter morning, isn't it? Let's jump down to verse 24 now in Exodus 12. 
Moses has called the elders of Israel together to prepare him for the actual meal that's getting ready to pay, take place, the Passover event, or I mean not the meal, uh, the actual Passover event. Uh, he has passed on to them instructions. The Lord has passed on to Moses and Aaron instructions, and Aaron is supposed to pass it on to the people of Israel. But nestled in the account of the Passover event, Moses gives instructions of the memorial nature of this meal that they're about to eat as the Lord is passing over them. And that's what I want to focus on a moment, and that starts in verse 24. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as He has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for He passed over our houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. Uh, and the, the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Remembering is an important thing for the children of God. We have a tendency to forget. So God gives us these kind of memorials and, and things that recall uh, Him to our mind and the things that He's done for us. And the Lord, through Moses, gave His people this memorial, this Passover meal that should be observed for generations to come. And then He reminds them, of generations past in that, same, in that same text, going down to verse 40, and we'll pick it up there. Uh, but down in verse 40, uh, he reminds them uh, of the, what led up to that tenth plague and, and the need for the exodus. Uh, so in verse 40, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this night is a night of watching to keep to the Lord by all of the people throughout the, of Israel throughout the generations. Notice that the actual Passover event is actually the, end of the 430th anniversary of when uh, the, uh, the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. And... Uh, it's a night when uh, the firstborn of Egypt died and the firstborn of Israel were spared. But it was a night of watching by the Lord the night that it actually occurred. The Lord was protecting uh, his, his people Israel that night. But all of the future memorials that follow is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all of the people of Israel. So that's that memorial where every, once a, every year the, the people of Israel were coming together to remember what God did for them on that night and uh, keeping a watch uh, to the Lord that night. God knows we need those kind of memorials and, uh, to help us remember, and He's always provided things like that for us. And Jesus provided one for us that we're going to be celebrating at the end of the service today. Uh, that night that Jesus would be portrayed, like I said, is a pr pretty significant date. 430 years after they went into slavery, they're freed through the Exodus. And now, some 1,500 years later, Jesus is in the upper room celebrating that same memorial, that same meal. So remembering and memorials are important for the children of God. Uh, our communion is a memorial that Jesus gave to us. Uh, and in it, we, we will be commanded by Jesus to, to do this in remembrance of me. I'm sure you've heard that many, many times. Uh, 
Um, but the Greek word for remembrance in those verses is anamnesis. Anamnesis. It appears only four times in the New Testament, and each time it relates to the sacrificial death of Jesus uh, to once and for all atone for, for the uh, sins of his people. No, no more will we need these animal sacrifices every year or every, uh, every so often. It's a once and for all sacrifice. And that word, used only four times in the New Testament, is a special word used to describe that. It's used in Luke's Gospel and uh, twice, once in Luke's Gospel and twice in the Apostle Paul, by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, which we will be reading for, uh, for our communion service. Each of those times they're quoting Jesus himself as he gives instructions for the Lord's table in the upper room. The only other time it's used is in the book of Hebrews, where it is translated as reminder instead of remembrance. But it's still in the context of teaching the once and for all death of Jesus Christ as our Savior. Uh, so it, it is a very special word. I'll leave Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 10 for you to look at later. Uh, but it's pretty fascinating. Uh, Jesus quotes Psalm 40 in the midst of that, uh, that text uh, as he teaches that uh, animal sacrifices do not, are not satisfying to God. It does not please God. Uh, and that he is going to need a perfect, righteous uh, lamb of God to be sacrificed uh, once and for all. So it's, it's worth uh, digging into that later. So as you can see, that word remembrance, anamnesis, is a, a very specialized word associated with the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, a dictionary that I used, a Bible dictionary, says it's more, much more than just remembering facts, but instead they describe it as an affectionate calling of the person himself to mind. So uh, affectionately calling Jesus to mind is what you're doing when you, when you do that in remembrance of him. You know, I don't know how we do that. I, I've got a finite mind, more finite than some, and Jesus is infinite. And uh, there is just so much that, uh, that we know and love about Jesus uh, to try to bring his essence to mind as we're uh, celebrating the Lord's table is, is a difficult thing to do. Uh, but the Holy Spirit helps us in that. He helps us to bring scriptures to mind and things about Jesus that, that he's done for us. Uh, as, we, as we contemplate. And, and surely, it, it won't take much for us to be filled with awe and uh, be inspired by what God has done for us uh, as we're going through the communion service, uh, because it doesn't take much to know about Jesus to be in awe of Him. Uh, so we'll have awe and wonder and thanksgiving uh, as, we, as we think and try to bring Jesus to our mind. So what other Old Testament events uh, point forward to the, what we've been celebrating this past week and what we're celebrating today, especially the resurrection. Uh, what else can we call to mind about Jesus from the Old Testament that helps us to understand who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross and, and by rising from that tomb? Well, we can go all the way back to uh, the fall uh, and the curse in the Garden of Eden. Um, Kim probably will chuckle here because uh, we spent about, it seemed like a year in Genesis 3.15 uh, at our last church. It, but there is so much there in Genesis 3.15. But in Genesis 3.14 and 15, it, it gives us our first clue that Jesus is not going to stay in that tomb. Uh, he's going to rise from the grave. The Lord God said to the serpent, 
This is Genesis 3.14. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Of course, her offspring there is it's talking about Jesus. Uh, and the difference between the bruising of the head and the bruising of the heel is, is important. It has to do with the finality of the event. The serpent's bruise on the head will be fatal. It will be final. Uh, but Jesus' bruise of the heel is not. And his resurrection from the tomb is, is evidence of that. It's, it's uh, the, the, the fulfillment of that, of that prophecy. Jesus was crucified. He was buried, but he, he rose from that tomb. He lives. He is the, at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf right now, and He's coming back. And when He comes, He will finish that second part of that prophecy in Genesis 3.15. He's going to crush the serpent's head, and He's going to defeat sin and death forever. And we will be able to spend eternity with Him, honoring and glorifying and celebrating and worshiping Him uh, for all eternity without the presence of sin, because Jesus is going to come back and fulfill the second part of that 315 prophecy. Let's also think about Job. Uh, Job had his doubts during his lifetime, uh, but listen to him in a, in a moment of prophetic clarity later on in his life. This is in Job 19. You don't need to go to it. Uh, but Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives. And I love that song, by the way, so maybe we can sing that someday soon. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in flesh I shall see God. So Job makes it clear that Jesus is going to be resurrected. But in that text, he's also making it clear that he knows he's going to be resurrected. The resurrection of the saints. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. So there's a, even more teaching of the, the resurrection of the saints after Jesus returns. And listen to what uh, prophet Isaiah had to say about Jesus' death and the resurrection. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He's talking about the resurrected Jesus at the end of that, uh, at that text. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in, the, in his hand. Jesus was that guilt offering. The offspring that he shall see are the resurrected saints. It's, it's us. It's those of us who believe in Christ. The will of the Lord is that we spend eternity with him, honoring and glorifying and worship, worshiping him for all of eternity uh, in glory. But some of my favorite texts from the Old Testament teaching about the resurrection 
are actually found in the New Testament where Jesus and his disciples and some of their contemporaries uh, actually use Old Testament references to prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, that, to prove that he rose from the tomb. Peter's sermon at the Pentecost is a great example. Uh, he used Psalm 16, a psalm of David. Uh, this is going to be in Acts 2, if you want to start heading there, verse 22. Um, but he used the psalm of David to teach about J Jesus' resurrection. Uh, Acts 2, verse 22. Uh, listen to th that portion of Peter's sermon as he, uh, as he teaches here. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to, by you, to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, now this is where Peter is quoting Psalm 16, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me, a full, make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, having quoted David's words in Psalm 16, Peter's now going to shift and make it clear that David wasn't talking about himself there. When he says, my flesh also will dwell in hope, I will, you will not abandon my soul in Hades, David may have been talking about himself, but he was also prophetically talking about Jesus Christ. And Peter's going to make that very, very clear here. Let's start in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Before being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he, that he was not to be abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Peter uses a psalm of David that was written hundreds of years before to teach about Jesus' resurrection. Peter says in that psalm that David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus and that he was not going to be abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see uh, corruption. This is the God raised up. This is Jesus, God raised up. And of uh, that, we, we are all witnesses, Peter and all of the disciples who uh, had been preaching these truths. And as Jesus continued to teach his disciples, as he progressed through the years of, of teaching his disciples, he became more and more explicit about what was going to happen to him. Um, but the full meaning of those words were prophetically, were uh, providentially withheld from those, uh, those disciples until after Jesus' resurrection. Luke makes a couple of these clear uh, examples uh, in his, his accounts. 
Um, one of them is in uh, Luke 9, but let, let's just jump on to the one that's in uh, Luke 18, a, a very explicit example of where Jesus tells him blank, point blank what's going to happen to him on that cross and, uh, in Jerusalem in the next uh, day or two, and uh, that he will rise from the grave in a few days. But they don't understand it. So let, let's take a look. Uh, Luke 18, starting in verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Notice that he's also even referring back there to what was written in the Old Testament by the prophets about what was going to happen. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. And that's really explicit. He's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles, mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, killed, and on the third day rise. But let's go down to the next verse and see what, what happens there. Verse 34, But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. That's, that's the providential hand of God working in those men's lives, preventing them from understanding that, because He's got a, a, a better plan for once uh, He is, is resurrected from that grave, the time that He will teach them for 40 days before He ascends to the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit will then eventually come back down and empower them to understand these kind of things. But we're just so incredibly blessed to live in the time that we live. Uh, we have the full res revelation of Scripture to study. We have the Holy Spirit within us to help us to understand the Scripture as we study it. So when we read these Old Testament prophecies of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, uh, and even these very explicit teachings that in Luke's Gospel that the di disciples didn't understand, we already know how it all turns out. Uh, so much of the mystery has been taken away and has been revealed to us. Uh, so just, uh, we, we have just such a blessing to, to have the entire uh, New Testament, the entire revelation of God, and uh, to be able to pick it up and study it any time we want. But as, as we've seen, uh, there's tremendous amount of teaching in the Old Testament, and even teaching by Jesus himself during his lifetime about the impending crucifixion and resurrection. But here we are on the eve of the crucifixion. Uh, the Passover meal is almost done. Uh, and the disciples still don't really understand what's going on. Uh, as a matter of fact, they're going to be fighting about who's the, uh, who's the most important here in a few minutes. But uh, to be fair to them, Jesus had not yet supernaturally opened their eyes to these truths yet. And he wouldn't until after the resurrection. Yet Jesus is about to institute a new ordinance, the Lord's table, to replace the Passover meal that they've been celebrating for some 1,500 years. But, but before we go to that Lord's table, before we take our communion, uh, I, I just want to look at some of what the Apostle Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 15, or 11 uh, about that service. It had come to Paul's attention. We'll start in uh, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. if you want to head there. Uh, but it had come to Paul's attention that uh, some people were take, partaking of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, uh, and he needed to set them straight. So this writing is, is where Paul's doing that. 
And, and you'll see he's, he's really blunt. He's really firm with them uh, in these passages. He, he tells them what they're doing wrong. Uh, he tells them how it should be done, how, how Jesus actually instituted it. And he tells them the possible consequences of continuing to do it in a wrong manner. And, and when I th talk about wrong, uh, think heart attitude more than procedures. Uh, it, it, they had wrong heart attitudes as they approached that table. So 1 Corinthians 11:17 through 22 is where Paul tells them that they were, uh, what they were doing wrong. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the betterment, better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead and with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. It's hard to miss the rebuke in those words. He's being really, really firm with them there. But first, I want to make something clear. It's, it's hard in our, it may be hard in our 21st century mindset to wonder how gluttony and drunkenness can, can occur with little pieces of bread and little cups of juice. But we have to put ourselves back in the mindset of what was going on in that day. Remember, the Passover meal was still, uh, it, at this point, it was being ended, but that was still the routine that the people uh, of the is, is Jewish nation uh, would, have, uh, would have been in. Uh, so we're talking about more than just the passing of the, the bread and the cup. Even, even that night uh, after the Passover meal, they had had a feast and the communion service came right at the very end. And that's probably the routine that the, the people of the church continued. They would get together for a, a, a huge feast and at the end, uh, they would pass the bread and pass the juice or the wine uh, in remembrance of, uh, of Jesus. Uh, so that's, that's how, uh, how that might have occurred. But since we don't have huge potluck feasts just before we go to the table, what are some of the underlying warning signs uh, about coming to the table in an unworthy manner that we can take out of that? Well, one of, one of them that you should look at is verse 18. It, it mentions divisions among the body of Christ. It says, for, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. As we are examining ourselves prior to participating in the Lord's table, and by the way, that's one of the reasons we schedule our Lord's table the same Sunday, the first Sunday every month, is so that in the week prior you can be doing this. You can be examining yourself, you can be repenting of sins that you find, and you can be preparing yourself to come to the Lord's table in a worthy manner. Um, but we might ask God to reveal to us any divisions that do exist in the body of Christ where we attend church, um, especially if we discern that we might be contributing to that division. Uh, unity is clearly a very high priority within the body of Christ. Paul even talks about it in uh, uh, Ephesians. 
when he equates uh, walking in a worthy manner with the unity of the body of Christ. You don't need to go there. I'll, uh, I'll just read this to you. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Can you hear the oneness in there? <laughs> Unity is incredibly important within the body of Christ. And, and Paul right there attaches that to walking in a worthy manner. So if we don't have that, we can't come to the communion table in a worthy manner as well. So that would be one thing for us to, to consider as we, uh, as we get ready to approach uh, the communion table uh, each month. That's clearly not what some in the church were doing there in Corinth, is it? Uh, so at the very least, that's something that we should do as, as we uh, uh, prepare. Verse 21, also, it lists some more problems. I'm not going to go into those. I'll let you think about that. But those are specific problems to that event. But as you look at that, think about what heart attitudes underlie, underlie that. And then look for those heart attitudes uh, as you consider whether, uh, whether you need to repent of anything before you approach the Lord's table. As for the potential consequences of participating in the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, let's, let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Jump down to 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And that's an important point that I think Pastor Scott made last month, was that uh, even the sickness and death for a follower of Christ, that's discipline. Uh, we're not being condemned to hell. Uh, we, we maintain our salvation. Uh, you can, but you can be put to death by God as discipline for uh, uh, unrepentant sin is, is, is the key. As you can see, the discipline that we can receive uh, by partaking of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner is pretty severe. It can be. Uh, even sickness and death. So it's nothing to be taken lightly. Uh, I, I think the key here in all of this is biblical self-examination and repentance before coming to communion. Uh, we always schedule it so that we can do that. So if you pr prayerfully examine yourself uh, according to the Scriptures and resolve as best you can any areas of unrepentant sin that you uncover as you're examining yourself, uh, then we can rest in the assurance that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, and we can boldly take uh, the Lord's Supper uh, and participate in His, His death. 
Uh, if anyone's visiting or watching online, for any of the visitors, um, you have to be a follower of Christ, obviously, to be uh, worthy of, of participating in this meal. Uh, so if you have repented of your sins and are a born-again believer, we would love for you to uh, participate with us as we, as we go through the Lord's table. If not, you should let it pass. And uh, many of us in here would be happy to talk to you about what it means to become a follower of Christ. Uh, get a hold of us after the service or any time throughout the week, and we'd love to share that information with you, uh, and, uh, and then allow you to come back and participate with us the next time. In a moment, I'll, I'll pass the elements. Uh, I'll pass the bread first. Uh, when, I, when you take the bread, just take it and keep a piece, uh, and I'll, I'll get all the way around the room, and we'll come back and we'll take that together. Uh, and then I'll do the same thing with the juice. I'll go around and, uh, and pass that out and just hold it until the end, and then we'll take it together. Um, 1 Corinthians 11.23 is where we find what Paul said we should do uh, in the Lord's Supper. And the key from the surrounding text we saw is that it should be done in a worthy manner after biblical self-examination and repentance if it's necessary. And if you're anything like me, it's usually necessary. Uh, this is the memorial that Jesus himself established for us 2,000 years ago, approximately, uh, to remember him until he returns. It's, it, it, it's a great gift that he has given us to help us to remember what he's done for us. 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Dear Heavenly Father, we, uh, we, we thank you for this gift that you've given us, this gift of uh, this memorial that uh, we, can, we can participate in any time we want as long as a, a group of brothers and sisters in Christ are together that want to remember you and want to remember the sacrifices that you've done for us. Uh, we thank you for the meaning that is behind it, uh, for the broken bread being the broken body of Jesus on the cross and the, the juice that we drink, the, the cup that we pass is the representative of the, the blood that Jesus spilled on our behalf, the bl blood that can cover those who will believe in him so that uh, when God comes in judgment, uh, he will see perfect righteousness in those who have accepted Jesus as their Savior. And so, Father, we thank you for this meal. We, we, we pray that uh, uh, it will be meaningful for, for each and every person that participates. And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. Paul said, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And as we wait, as we wait for that day that He returns, we have this great memorial that we celebrate together as a reminder to help us to remember. It's a gift that Jesus Himself gave to us before He was crucified, buried, and resurrected. Let us strive to help each other to remember Jesus and His resurrection throughout the year until He comes. The choir is going to bless us with a, a song now, He Lives. Is it the choir or just... We're going to sing. Okay, we're going to sing, He Lives. And then I will, uh, I will dismiss this.